Good morning. It's great to be with all of you. A little different to be on this side of the podium than the other. I prefer it over there, but it's the same thing that brings us together whichever side we're on, and that's the Word of God. And so I'd like you to grab your Bibles and open them to Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. We're going to be looking at a section of a powerful passage, just a little part of it, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 to 21. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for your word. We're thankful for those times when it has comforted us in our loss, when it has guided us in our confusion, when it has strengthened us in the face of opposition, and when it has brightened our hope of eternal life because of your great and precious promises. Thank you for revealing Christ to us through your word. Now as we come to it, would your spirit attend the preaching of the word and the hearing of it, that it might profit us, each one, from the youngest to the oldest, and that together when we're done, we might lift up our hands and give praise and thanks to you. Ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we read, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of God. Be to God. Amen. Well, it was about a month ago that I came back from my junket to Arizona to teach counseling at Indian Bible College. And like what you do after any good vacation, you kind of look back on those, the good times, the best memories that you have. And that's what I've been doing this last month. And some of the memories that have been the brightest for me have been those of a very special time that I had with the students. I gave them, all the five years that I've been there, I gave them the opportunity of spending an hour with me one-on-one to talk about anything that they wanted to talk about. And in five years, only had one student who thought he had a better use for his time. What would they talk about? Well, the thing that they almost all wanted to talk about was their homes, to talk about their homes. But after listening to about 30 students, I still don't know whether any of them live in Hogan's 
or in teepees, or in townhouses, or duplexes. Because they didn't talk about the house itself, the structure, they talked about the relationships within those homes. And the stories that I heard were varied, but there did seem to be three types of stories that jumped out at me, stories that were disturbing in many ways, and I just wanted to highlight those for you for a moment. Because some of the stories I heard were stories of families that would be characterized by conflict, Homes in which shouting was the normal way of communication, where throwing things or hitting was not thought of as something to be appalled by, but something you just had to take in the course of life. Other more severe degrees of violence might also occur and were kind of something that you just endured. You just had to put up with it. It's what went on. In other homes, it sounded like they were just chaos, because everyone in the home, from young and from old, and it might be a family with a lot of people in it, everybody was just doing their own thing. Nobody was living, really relating to anybody. So parents might be doing their own things, ignoring their children. The children then being ignored were getting into all the mischief that kids can get into. Chaos. But then in another class of homes, it was a picture that you almost might, you could think of, it's, it's like that little house, little cottage there behind the white picket fence, you know. Everything is nice and quiet and calm. The only problem is there's nobody there. That the students grew up sometimes in a situation where there were largely no parents present, not even any aunts or grandmas. It might be that the parents were in jail. Or it might have been that they were out hustling drugs or sex or something else. Or it might be, as was sometimes the case, the parents were gone because they had to get up early in the morning to drive two hours to get to a job that they held and then drive two hours back. They were gone, basically, for all of the day, leaving the child to have to deal with being by themselves without having that kind of human relationship and input that we were made for. Now, I tell you those stories not to in any way characterize Native American life. All I did was share with you some of the highlights of some of the stories that I heard. But as I thought about my own experience of talking with families in the Seattle area as a counselor, I realized that in some ways our homes are not that much different from those Native homes that I described. Issues of conflict and chaos and isolation thrive in the greater Seattle area. How about your home? Are there those interpersonal relationships that just seem never to be able to get fixed? Or is it that situation where everybody's got their own agenda and therefore nobody shares an agenda? Or are there folks in your home, perhaps you, who just feel that in spite of the fact that there are people milling about, that there's an overwhelming aloneness and sense of isolation that just seems to take you over? If that's the case, then I'd like to think about those kinds of situations and understand them and then think about what might be some solutions, some ways that God might work in us and through us and for us that would help to deal with those issues. What I'd like to get at is the problem behind the problems. You know, what's really going on? What causes all this distress? Now, if we listen to the voices of culture, we'll often will hear this, that the problems within our family are caused by problems outside of our family, that we have trouble as individuals in relationships because our world is so messed up, because of social, societal ills, racism, 
limitations on, on what the kind of a job a person can have. Inadequate medical care, inadequate health care. It's out there. If we could just fix our culture, if we could fix the, change the environment, then we would change the people within it. But I think that Scripture points us in the opposite direction. It tells us that the problems that we experience in relationships are caused by a problem that lies within. And so I want to look at that for a minute, and I want to start by zeroing in on just one small phrase in the text, and then I'm going to piece it all together, and, and hopefully when we're done, it'll all begin to make some sense. But the phrase that I want to have you look at and to think about as the cause of relational problems is this expression in verse 15, live for themselves live for themselves. As I was thinking about those situations on the res and in other places where conflict between people occur, it just jumped out at me out of the text and said, that's it. That's the problem. We live for ourselves. And so the goal would be, is there a way that we can stop living for ourselves? Is there a way that that can be changed? First, let's think about what that means. It does not mean, if you're living for yourself and we're saying that's a problem, it's not talking about taking care of yourself. It's not talking about getting enough to eat. It's not talking about bathing. It's not talking about getting enough sleep. It's not talking about earning a living. All it's talking about is the living for yourself alone living without regard for the needs of other people, living without regard for the claim that God has on your life as your creator, the one who, who made you to thrive in the world and told you how to live that way. When we live for ourselves, we've thrown that aside. That's, that's gone somewhere else. This theme fills Scripture. This little thing jumped out at me, that little phrase, because it's throughout Scripture. Think of the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Choice, of Choosing. Why does Eve decide to eat the fruit of the tree that was forbidden? When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. What you hear there is somehow the fact that Adam and Eve were made by God to be in relationship with Him, somehow that living with and for God has gone out the window, and now it's, what tastes good? What delights my belly? What delights my eyes, my sense of emotions as we delight, for instance, at a sunset? What would make me better than I am? What would give me that wisdom that would get me up a notch, make my position better? Living for yourself. Think of King David. We think of his sins of, of adultery with Bathsheba. We think of his murder of her husband, Uriah. But the core sin, the sin behind all of that is that David was in it for himself. Everything that he did was to protect him and advance him, living for himself. Think of Judas. We think of his betrayal of the Christ. But before he was the betrayer of the Christ, he was living for himself. John tells us that he was a thief and that even though he was the treasurer of the disciples and had the money bag, he just helped himself to it. Why would he do that? He was in it for himself. And then think of Pilate who found Christ blameless but he condemned him to death to protect himself and his own reputation. There are more examples, that's doubtless enough, right? The tricky thing is, though, that not every not-for-yourself act necessarily looks that way. For instance, even those who are very altruistic and very generous can be doing it 
for their own self-centered purposes. Jesus noted outside the temple, the very wealthy coming into the temple and putting great sums of money into the treasury. And he'd say, how awesome, you know, that church is going to meet their budget. But he noted that they were doing this to call attention to themselves. So if the problem runs through Scripture, I hope and I believe that the answer also runs through Scripture. But let me take just a minute to first look at what does not solve the problem. What does not solve the problem I believe that cultural analysts are really good at identifying problems. They're really good at spotting sin, but they're not very good at finding the solutions that are found in God. So those who reflect on the struggles in our current culture are quick to see this problem, the problem of me first, the problem of living for myself. In a recent interview, columnist David Brooks bemoaned the future of our country if we continue in this me-first approach to whatever we're doing. If that's not overcome, that's got to change if we have a future as a country. But the question is, so how can that happen? He seemed to be suggesting in this interview that somehow we need to get in touch with our better selves and begin to stir up something within us that would lead us to be more considerate of the rest of people in the culture. But how can that happen? I was pacing the floor, throwing up my hands and going crazy. There are two ways the culture thinks basically that we can get in touch with those better selves, the way that we can live more in terms of others. One way is moral persuasion. I just need to persuade you to be a better person. I might do that through education. When people are on the wrong track, we send them to education, whether it's prison or probation, whatever, try to give them a bigger, better perspective. Or we apply social pressure to them. You're a shameful person if you don't get on the bandwagon and become more outward focused. Or maybe we incentivize it. You know, we'll give you money if you do the right thing. On the other hand, there's the legal persuasion. Laws made to make us not be so self-centered. And laws against criminal behavior are a good thing. I'm glad that we have a system that has laws in place. But you know, the laws don't solve the problem. They simply mask it. I don't speed because I don't want to get a ticket. The law gives lawful authorities the right and the obligation to punish wrongdoing but it never gets at the heart. And that's the problem, is that all of these, they can't work because they try to take an outside impetus and jam it inside, hoping that a way of life is going to grow out of it. But the only way, Jesus says, the only way that life blossoms on the outside is from a change that he makes to us on the inside. So what does solve the problem? What's the change that would turn us from that living for ourselves kind of mentality? Look at the rest of that verse. Paul says that he longs to see people who no longer live for themselves, but they live for him who for their sake died and was raised. The him you know is referring to Jesus Christ, the one who died and who rose again. And somehow that that, people could be turned, people could change from living for themselves to live for one who's their Savior Somehow, it's not enough to convince us that we ought to live for one another. But Paul believed that we could come to learn to live not for ourselves, but for Jesus. And I'd just like you to think about what a momentous change that that would be. Think for a minute. Imagine that you were in a world where every prospect pleases. 
where every, everywhere you looked, there were gardens and forests and trees and birds, where there were beautiful buildings, homes, office buildings, highways that were clean and orderly and neat. The landscape and prospect was really beautiful. But then you, you draw a little nearer and you look in and you realize, man, these people, they're all living for themselves. They lie like crazy to get what they want. They cheat others out of what belongs to them to get it for themselves. They would kill for a loaf of bread. This is a dangerous place because everybody, however beautiful it is, is living for themselves. And you might say, this is a horrid place. I want to get out of here fast. And so you want to get out of there fast and you're looking around and you notice off in the distance there's a door. And over the door it says life. And you said, i got to get out of here. And you head for that door. And you go through the door and you're surprised at what you see because the landscape is so different. It looks like a city that's been through a war. Things are in bad shape. Buildings have been bombed out. Craters around. There are people who are wounded. And yet what you see is that everywhere, everyone is treating each other with kindness. People are being cared for. They're being helped. Everyone is sharing what they have with others. And in spite of the mess, there's a sense of peace and a happiness. It's as if a hymn of praise was going up from all the folks who are in this very difficult situation. So do you see how everything's flip-flop? Can you see what an enormous change that that would be? Which side would you like to live on? Would you like to be surrounded by folks who would care for you and try to understand you? Or would you like to be in a much cleaner, neater, tidier place, but you've got to watch your back? This is the change that Paul's talking about, going from living for ourselves to living for Christ. But the question is, if it's so hard to live for people for the benefit of the people that we can see, what would have to happen to make us live for someone whom we cannot see? See the problem? I'll give you the answer. This is why this is so powerful. The answer is, what would the change be that could take someone from being self-serving to becoming Christ-serving? Look at the very beginning of this passage, the very first line, the four words, I hope they stick with you, the love of Christ, the love of Christ. Not our love for him, but rather his love, the love that he has, the love that he has for us. Do you know that the love of Christ is so powerful that it can transform the lives of ordinary people like you and like me? Could it be that strong? Paul reflects on this love, and he says it is strong. He uses the word, he says, the love of Christ controls us. That's pretty powerful to be controlled. That means you have to do what somebody else wants. That's pretty powerful. That word, though, makes me nervous. Does it make you nervous? When I think of being controlled, I think of a robot. And somebody is treating me like an animal or an instrument and making me do what they want. And I don't think that that's at all what Jesus is thinking about or what Paul's thinking about. I prefer the older translation that uses the word, the love of Christ constrains us. 
And I don't know what you think about when you hear that word constraint, but something's being held back or held in. One translator made the point of it's like guardrails. It's like being fenced in so that there's no choice except to go where the fencing leads. A picture you might use would be, imagine you were going down the street and you wanted to turn onto a surface street, but you accidentally turned onto an on-ramp to I-5. You know, if you make a mistake and go down the wrong street, you can usually get turned around and get back to where you want to go. You get on the on-ramp and you are constrained to go to Billingham. But that's the idea that something is powerful enough to push us in a good direction, in a direction that would involve us living as creatures of God, living as fellows with other human beings. Though let me push this a little bit farther and say, what makes the love of Christ so powerful? Well, Paul says a number of things here, but one thing he says is, you know, this love, this love of Christ for you, it's a dying love and a rising love. Look there at the end of verse 15. Living for the one who for their sake died and rose again. It's a dying love because he died to take away the guilt of our sin. We might be set free from that. That's accomplished by his standing in our place and taking the judgment that our sins deserve. It's a rising love in that having died for our sins, having brought us to the cross, uh, he rises and gathers us up together into a new family and a new life. Now we belong somewhere. We belong to him in an environment of love and care. But not only that, Paul also says that it's not only a dying love and a rising love, it's also a connecting love. We're going to look at this interesting expression. Paul says that he's concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. When we think of the one who died, we of course know that we're talking about Jesus. He's the one who died. But what does it mean that all have died? We think that everyone was dead in their trespasses and sins. But what Paul is actually getting at is the fact that when Christ died, you died together with him. Then in God's way of doing things, you were somehow united into his death. Just think you died to something. You no longer had an interest in it. Now you've got a different kind of interest. And so those who died also with Christ... They're alive to a new world, to a new way of doing things and and seeing things. They're free now. You're free because you were united to Christ in his death. Now you're free to love one another, to escape the bonds of living for yourself, which lead only to your harm as well as the harm of others. This is a theme that Paul just returns to over and over again in Scripture. Two examples, Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. Not just he died with Christ, but there's Christ on the cross. He had a crucifying death because he was united to Christ. And therefore, he says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And he puts it a different way in Romans 6 when he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Walking in newness of life. Another way of looking at that would be no longer living for ourselves. That was the old way of living. Now living for Christ, this new way. So to sum it up, Jesus not only gave you new life, he also wrapped you up in his death so that you could be, as it were, resurrected. 
At the very least, you could say you were born again. It's like he gave you a heart transplant, a new life. So think with me for a minute about how that would change your life. Here's just one example from Paul's life that he gives. Look at verse 16. He says, Therefore, because of all he's been talking about, about the love of Christ and how it's transforming, he says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Paul is saying, you know, I used to look at people and I evaluated them, I judged them, and I did it the way we all do it, based on the things that we can see, based on their fame and their fortune. You know, what have they got going for them? Or maybe on the other hand, we judge them and see them as fumbling, frail, faltering failures with no future. There's a few F words. So he says, I used to, that's the way, you know, it's an easy way to do that, you know. You guys over here, you are all fame and fortune, and you guys over here, you're all (laughs) faltering failures. You know, it's so easy to do that. Paul says, I used to do that, but I don't do that anymore. Well, if you stop judging people, if you stop evaluating them based on what you see, maybe you're seeing their behavior, and the behavior may be rotten, but what's left by which you consider people and think about them? Well, if the flesh is gone, then the only other way to do it is by faith. How do you evaluate people by faith? You see people through the lens of what God can do in them. The story isn't over because someone led a bad life. Someone's homeless. Someone's living a criminal life. The story isn't over. What could they become? What could the power of God do with them then? What would be powerful enough to change the way that you see people? Paul says he used to think about Jesus, even Jesus that way. But after he came face to face with the risen Christ, God turned Paul's vision upside down or inside out. Has seeing Jesus in his love as it's revealed in Scripture, has that changed the way that you see? When you look at people around you, do you see their failures and their weaknesses? Do you write them off and say, they're never going to change? Do you see people primarily as problems? If so, I want to say to you, stop that. Unless, stop that unless you want them not to change. Unless you need them to be messes so that you can look good by comparison. Several years ago, a woman from another church came to see me. She wanted to talk about ways that she might reconnect with a, an adult son that she had who was alienated from her. Well, I like doing that. I like helping people come back together. But this was an odd counseling session because every time I tried to encourage her in reaching out to her son to see the future potential for their relationship, she wanted to get stuck in the past. She wanted to tell me all about his failures and all about what a great job that she has done. I was trying to help her see the future, and she wanted to stay stuck. A past in which she was right and he was wrong. She said she wanted to change, but what she really wanted was to be proved righteous, to be defended in the way in which she behaved. She wanted to stick to her judgmental attitudes. Have you ever been like that? Boy, I have. I have. About 30 years ago, I was pretty angry with my life. And for some reason, I had concluded that my wife was probably the core of the problem. And so I went to a counselor, 
along with my yellow legal pad filled with very specific complaints that I had against my wife. And I was looking forward to this counseling session. I was looking forward to to being able to go over this line by line and have the counselor tell me how I could fix my wife. Well, I hadn't been in there five minutes before I realized that he was not at all interested in my list. In fact, he wasn't interested in helping me change my wife at all. He had the nerve, in fact, of letting me know pretty clearly that he thought that I needed a change. Now, he didn't lecture me, although I certainly deserved it. He just told me a very simple story, a story of a time when he had been like I was. He had been furious at his wife because they were going to the gym to get some exercise, and she asked him to carry the diaper bag for their newborn son. Now, maybe it wasn't that she asked him, maybe she told him, But in any event, he was steaming and he was furious. And why was he furious? Because he was going to go into that gym carrying a diaper bag and be humiliated in front of all these masculine buff dudes who were doing their workout thing. And he didn't want to experience that kind of humiliation. And maybe to put this in context, as Kathy and I were talking about this story, this is far enough back when it was before diaper bags were kind of masculine looking, you know, kind of unisex, you know. (laughs) It might have had flowers on it. I don't know what it was. But in any event, he did not want to be a part of this. The funny thing is, I don't remember the rest of that story. And I think the reason I don't remember it is because I realized in that moment that what that moment was, it was a King David and Nathan the prophet kind of moment. Because even I could see what an insensitive bum my counselor was. Who would treat their wives like that? Just getting over a pregnancy, having to deal with a newborn. You know, I could see that, you know, send that guy to prison. (laughs) But it hit me without him actually saying it, what he said by that story was, Ed, you're the man. You're the man. And I was pierced. I was pierced. And I won't bother to tell you about all the ways I tried to live toward my wife in a more understanding way after I tore up my list. And I'm sure that I didn't do a great job of it, but something was different. And I tell you that story just because when Christ's love has gotten a hold of you, you will start to see people differently, which means you'll start praying for them. Whether they're friends or enemies, you'll be sharing love with the most unlikely people. You'll stop putting God in a box because you stop putting people in a box. Now, that does not mean that by laying hold of the love of Christ for you, that you'll always live for Christ instead of for yourself. Don't think that highly of yourself. That's not going to happen. But what it does mean is that focusing on Christ's love for you is the only way that you're ever going to really be able to live for others instead of yourself. And let me press this point a little bit more. You know, around here, if there was something I'd say about APC, it would be this, that around here, almost everything we do in worship is intended to help you focus on the love of Christ for you. Songs, prayers, scripture, messages, the Lord's Supper. The prayer of leadership is that when you get done with the experience of worship on a Sunday, that you'll have a stronger grasp, a more solid grasp on the love of Christ for you. But all that focus also needs to draw your attention to the way that you think of folks in your world. How you think about them is also supposed to change. And so if 
Drawing near to Christ doesn't lead you also to be open to thinking about the people around you in a different way than, than something's gone wrong because the Apostle John makes it really clear that once you know the love of Christ, two things need to happen. One is that you'll worship Him more robustly, and secondly, that you'll be more loving toward those who are made in His image. Now, we started off by looking at some very specific examples of stories of life among my students' lives and perhaps among your lives, and we've kind of gone down a very narrow focus that the text takes us down, but I'd like to step back for just a minute and revisit those three examples and try to see a little bit about the way that growing in living for Christ changes the way in which we live in relationship to other people. Take the issue of conflict. How does letting the love of Christ lead you to live for Him instead of for yourself? Well, one way it does that, it works by sowing seeds of peace and forgiveness. You have the chance to be forgiving as you have been forgiven. If you know that Christ loves you, that He's got you, that you're solid, you're secure, you don't need to pick a fight to get your way. Your way just might not be that important. In fact, God might not really... (laughs) Think your way is all that good. You don't need to go there because it's no longer about you. It can be about Christ. God may have a better way for you that's going to blossom as you stop being the one to keep the fight going. How about the problem of chaos? Learning to let the love of Christ draw you to live for Him instead of for yourself sows seeds of cooperation. You know, when you live for yourself, when you live for your purposes, Everything you're doing is about your life is what matters. But the love of Christ begins to take hold in a family that develops a growing common purpose. The family isn't all going in the same direction. Imagine this story. Here's a family, and they're coming to the dinner table. There's four or five, six of them, whatever. And they're coming to the table, maybe not to eat. Maybe they're coming for a family conference. Let's have a Sunday night family conference, which is a great thing to do. But everybody's coming with their own idea of what the family ought to be doing. They've got an agenda. So there's four, five, six different agendas. And those agendas are defined by what each individual person wants to do. But suppose the leader of the family got everybody calmed down and quieted down. And he said, you know, let's think about maybe there's a different way to approach this. Maybe we should think about what do you think Jesus would want us to do? What might he be wanting to say to us about a family? And I'm not suggesting that this kind of change happens in an instant, that everybody has this ah moment, and all of a sudden they become 100% sanctified, because that doesn't happen to individuals. But what I am saying is that as it begins to be a habit, more of a pattern, and the parents set that pattern, because more a pattern of not living for yourself, but living for Christ, that kind of spirit can grow and develop. Lastly, what about that problem of isolation? It's the problem of our age. There's not enough mental health workers to help people who are dying because of their loneliness. How does this change that? It sows seeds of human connection. Connection instead of isolation. Now, some people have noted that sometimes people who are really living for Christ, they're really gung-ho about their service of Him, they kind of forget about their family. Maybe you've been a part of that family. You're kind of neglected by people who are overcome with serving Christ. But that's not the way Christ intended it to be. 
If you live for Christ, you see that what Jesus is about is going around pouring out His love for others, calling them to find rest in Him, calling them His brothers and sisters. And so the question is, can you do less than He does? Because now you no longer need to be spending your time defending yourselves or pushing somebody else down so that you can be higher up. Now you've got time and now you've got the heart to check in on others to embrace them, to care for them, to talk to them, to inquire of them, to enjoy them. you enjoying the folks that God's put in your world. There's one gift, though, one benefit of this that's even bigger than changes that it might make to problems of conflict and chaos and isolation. And I want to tell you what it is. Uh, it's what the native students found and what they were really so eager to share with me, and it's this. The native students were not necessarily looking for the fixing of their homes. They knew they couldn't do that alone. They might be the only believer in the entire family. It's too big a job. But what was more important was that in coming to Christ and hearing the gospel of the love of Christ preached to them, they know that they have a better home, that they belong to a better home. They belong in Jesus' home, eternal in the heavens. And so when they see improvements, and wouldn't you love to have improvements in a family? Sure they would, just like you. But when they see those improvements, they realize that they were simply little little previews, little peaks at what they were looking forward to in their eternal life in the presence of Christ. The other thing I noticed was that they were the most clear-spoken group of people about finding their identity in Christ. Is that a topic that's familiar to you in your conversation? The identity that you have in Christ? They were vocal about it. Jesus loves me. This I know. I belong to Him. They have tribal identities. Some are Navajo, Cherokee, whatever. And they're proud of those. That's their history. Some of them belong to the Bear Clan or the Porpoise Clan. But they realized that in coming to Christ, now they belong to the Jesus Clan and that that gave them a sense of wholeness and participation that was completely that transcends what their experience was when they were simply a Native American. As I was starting to work on this sermon, I took a blank piece of paper, and I began to write out words from the text that seemed to me to be especially important, words that I ought to really soak in and really get a hold of. And I wrote them down in the middle of the page, And in the very, very middle of the page, I wrote down in big letters the phrase, new creation. Do you see those words there in verse 17? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. I wrote that down right in the middle because being a new creation is what everything is Paul has been talking about here. It's like it's the summary or the bottom line of what we're talking about, that when we see the love of Christ, We give up living for ourselves. We start living for Him. That's simply something's been made anew. This verse is like a doxology. It's like a hymn of praise. The old has passed away. The new has come. That's the center of this whole idea. Are you a new creation today? Or are you maybe an old creation with a retread? You know, it's fairly easy in Seattle to pretend to be okay. But Jesus didn't come to save pretenders. He came to save sinners. Do you know that you're one? Are you one of those who still needs to come to his family 
that maybe you've been hiding out and bobbing and weaving and finding a way to fit into this church vibe without actually having to become part of it, to submit to Christ, to rely on His love. I bring this up not to stir up any feelings of shame or embarrassment on anyone, but simply to end where Paul ends in this passage and to ask you if you realize that I don't have this. This is not what I've got. I've been acting it out. I've been pretending this when my heart is really, I'm doing it just for me. I pretend like I'm a Christian because it keeps mom and dad off my back, keeps my husband, my wife off my back, whatever. Paul was preaching and he had good news. And that good news was that Jesus died and that he rose again and that his love is so great that he can catch you up in it. And so he would say, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Is that yours? I want to pray now. And I'm going to use a prayer that if you have the printed copy of the bulletin, it's the Quieting Our Hearts for Worship Prayer by Scotty Smith. I thought, I can't do anything better than this, so I'm going to end with this prayer. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, oh, the wonder of this good news. We cannot hear it too much, believe it too deeply, or rejoice in it too fully. By your death on the cross, you have taken away our sins once and for all. Nothing is left undone. Nothing more needs to happen. Nothing else could have met our need. It's not, you did your part, now we must do our part. It's, you did your part, now let us trust in your part. Even as we rest in your finished work, so we rejoice in your present reign, Lord Jesus. Atoned for sin will be abolished sin. Already defeated evil will be eradicated evil. Vanquished enemies will be eliminated enemies. May the joy of this good news buckle our knees in humble adoration and empower our hands for neighbor love. Amen.